Hello, everybody. Jace here. Quick message before we get to the main episode. Uh, you know, I try not to get too political on the show. Maybe if that's something that really interests the guest, we might get into a little bit of politics, but mostly we're here to just celebrate comics. But uh, I can't ignore what's going on in the world, specifically the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So uh, on our Twitter, pinned as the tweet, is a link to UNICEF which is an organization that focuses on uh, areas of the world where there is a lot of strife, war going on. Specifically, they try to provide clean water, medical care, and other uh, essential needs specifically for children and families. So regardless of which side of the fence you're on, whether or not you believe that one side or the other is right or wrong, uh, we can all agree that children and their families shouldn't be suffering for the choices that their leaders are making. So please, if you have a few dollars, uh, every little bit helps. You can go to unicef.org, that's U-N-I-C-E-F dot O-R-G, and just look for the Ukraine appeal. Click there, or you can go to the Comic Source Twitter account, and the link is there for you to donate. So uh, again, appreciate the support, everybody, and I uh, hope you're all being safe out there. Welcome to another episode of The Comic Source. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, an amazing book that is uh, about to be released in just a few days. I have the uh, award-winning author of that book joining me, uh, Alex Segura. Alex, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, I, uh, thank you for giving me an advanced copy. Uh, I still have my pre-order for the audio version because I love listening to audio books while I oh, drive. And uh, I'm interested in, in checking it out in terms of, you know, having that audio drama. But I already got to actually read a, a copy. It was amazing. Really embraces the love of comics, which I know you have. I do as well. Uh, and so before we talk about the book, I do want to kind of talk about uh, your your role that you have right now at Oni Press, which is uh, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing, uh, because you you grew up loving comics. And, you know, we hear rumors right now about how things are going in the industry, you know, oh, it's comics are dying, blah, blah, blah. You're, you're in a kind of unique position to kind of talk to us about the way you see it from your, uh, you know, from your perspective uh, in that role at, at Oni. So how do you feel like the comics market and comics industry is doing right now? I mean, I think it's just funny because comics, there's a, every era of comics has its portion of people saying the industry is dying. And, and when you read Secret Identity, you'll see like there's a big sense of the industry dying in 1975 because it's before comic shops or a secondary market. Um, in terms of now, I mean, sales have never been higher in terms of the book market. Uh, comic shops are doing well. So I would I would dispute that. I think, um, I think obviously we faced a lot of challenges with the pandemic and how that affected comic shops. And we're seeing a lot of changes in distribution in terms of who partners with whom and, and uh, creating a diversity of options for publishers. But I would I, I tend to always lean towards the glass half full as opposed to empty. And I think that, you know, comics has shown over the last you know, 80 years that it perseveres and finds its way. So I think we'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, do you think that, you know, not to 
put words in people's mouth or anything, but do you think it's more just this idea that they have an, an, an agenda? You know, uh, we, you and I both acknowledge that comics have always been political, but there's this, this group that seems to, I don't know, head in the sand sort of thing. And, and, you know, it's maybe like, well, you used to agree with the politics and maybe now you don't. And so, yeah, you have this agenda. And so in order to, to fit your narrative, you have to talk about the fact that the comics are dying. Like, I, I don't, I just don't know where it comes from. You have any theories on that? I mean, the facts say different. So that's all I need to say. Like, you know, if you look at the facts, you look at the sales charts, comics are thriving. So. All right. Fair enough. Uh, well, yeah, let's talk. Let's dive into the book, uh, Secret Identity. It, it goes wide release on March 15th. I've already seen it on, uh, you know, a ton of recommended reading lists. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that you've won awards for your work in the past. Um, and, and you also mentioned that Secret Identity, obviously, in, set in the 70s. Um, and also kind of deals with the, the industry of comics, which I found fascinating. Uh, so give everybody the elevator pitch. What's the what's the book about fundamentally? Sure. The book is uh, set in 1975, New York, and it follows a Cuban-American woman named Carmen Valdez, who moves from her hometown of Miami to New York to pursue her dream. She grew up reading comics. Uh, she has been a reader since she was a kid. You know, she has great memories of going to the newsstand with her dad and picking up comics and, and he learned how to read English through comics. So there's a lot of like personal connection. Um, so she gets a job at a basically a third rate publisher called Triumph Comics, and they are striving to be Marvel and DC, but not making it. You know, they're just not you know, it's a very challenging time for the comic business. Uh, she gets a job as a secretary to the CEO of the company, this man, Jeffrey Carlisle. But her dream is to write comics. And she makes it clear from the get-go that she wants to write comics. So she's pitching her boss, pitching him ideas. And it comes to a head early on in the book. And he says, look, it's not going to work. I've got a line of people around the door of freelancers I've worked with for years that are friends of mine that I'm going to keep busy. And it would just be weird for me to give my secretary work. So I have other plans for you. Maybe you'll be an editor. You can help me run the place. And she says, that's not what I want. I want, I want to write comics. And um, so she's disheartened. And right around the same time, a colleague, this younger junior editor named Harvey Stern approaches her awkwardly, actually, um, and says, look, I've got this opportunity to write the first issue of a new series. Uh, it's, they want a female superhero. That's all I know. Do you want to work with me on it? Um, the only catch is she needs to do it anonymously. And he, of course, Harvey promises, look, you know, if it becomes a hit, I'll, I'll let everyone know that you co-wrote it and you'll get credit. But for now, I think it's better if, if you do it in secret. And so it's, you know, that's red flags aplenty, but Carmen sees it as the only way to really get the chance to do what she's been working toward. And so they create this character called the legendary Lynx, which is kind of a street level crime fighter in the vein of Moon Knight or Daredevil or uh, the question. And it becomes a huge hit. It, uh, it becomes Triumph's best-selling title. And the only problem is Harvey's murdered and the scripts only bear his name and the comic book company Triumph only thinks Harvey wrote it. And so Carmen is seeing the machinery kind of move on without her. She's seeing the character slip out of her hands and she can't just go tell her boss, Hey, I co-wrote it because he's already told her not to do that, you know, not to muck with the creative process. So she has to basically take it upon herself to solve her friend's murder, to reclaim the character. And I think one of the fun parts about the book is that interspersed between the prose are actual comic book sequences. So you're following Carmen around as she's investigating the murder. 
but you're also reading pages from the legendary links, like different issues, different creators working on the character, and they're kind of in conversation with each other. Yeah, and in a way, those pages sort of reflect the journey that that Carmen goes on. Because here's the thing about that line around the block uh, that that is there, waiting to to have a chance to, to you know to write something. That line doesn't have any women in it. It's mm. all men, right? It's uh, all like people he he's buddies with. Yeah, exactly. And you know, being that it was the '70s, um, I saw in the in the back of the book, and I saw that you said in interviews that you kind of went to the the source, if you will, because uh, we know that was a time where there wasn't a lot of diversity. There was very much kind of a uniformity in, in voice. It was basically straight white guys that were writing the comics. Uh, but there were a few uh, really kind of pioneers and, and trailblazers that you went and kind of tapped their knowledge to get a sense of the what it was like to be in the industry at that time for, for women. So can you talk a little bit about doing that um, that part of the research? Yeah, I think... You know, I obviously read a lot of comic book history books and reread a lot. I've, I've always been a fan of comic book history as just, you know, loving comics. But I knew that writing this book, I wanted to talk to people that had that firsthand experience of being, you know, of working in comics as women in the 70s. And um, so I reached out to, you know, people that I'm blessed to consider friends or colleagues like, um, you know, Lori Sutton, Linda Fight, who wrote The Cat at Marvel, which was, I think, one of the first on comic series starring a female hero written by a woman. Um, Louise Simonson, who's obviously written so many amazing comics, you know, New Mutants, X-Factor, uh, Superman, uh, you know, the list goes on. And um, they all graciously gave me their time, you know, whether it was like a quick conversation by phone um, or just email. Karen Berger, I spoke to at length, like we worked together when I was at DC and I was able to tap her, tap her brain. I mean, her timeline's a little bit later. She came in, I think, in the early 80s, but it still was relevant context to me, like to kind of get that sense of what it was like to work in comics. So kind of during that ballpark. And really what I did was, you know, ask what, it, you know, asked, you know, about their experiences. And also I kind of walked them through the plot, like the big stroke, you know, the broad strokes of the story and kind of got a sense of whether it made sense or, you know, what, you know, was there anything kind of wonky in that? And um you know, there was, it was such a huge help and, and it was, and I got so much help from other comic creators who worked in comics at the time who could give me insight into the nuts and bolts of it. Like, look, I was born in 1980. I was not alive in 1975. I've never made any claim that I worked in comics at the time, but um, I am blessed to have the resources to like talk to people like Paul Levitz or Jerry Conway or Stuart Moore, people that were in the trenches and working in comics or, you know, starting to work in comics at the time. And they were able to give me, like little details that just make it feel more genuine as opposed to, Oh, it's clear this person has no idea what he's talking about. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the industry was so different back then before the direct market. I mean, direct market fundamentally changed everything. And now we're at a point where it's, I, I almost sometimes feel like it's built on a, a house of cards. It's just so crazy. The fact you order something two months ahead of time before it's even produced, no other industry has to do that, but that's a conversation for another day. But my point is, it was so different back then in the 70s. And really, this story feels like the intersection of, of all the things that are you, right? Like, here we are, 70s New York. Here we are, comics industry. Uh, you mentioned that Carmen is, uh, you know, Cuban-American. Uh, so, I mean, and I also saw that you said this is a, a story that you've wanted to write for a long time. So, can you talk about putting all these things that are sort of fundamentally your loves or, or things that you can relate to on a personal level, like into a story? Is this like the story you were born to write in a way? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's just it contains everything, almost everything that I am obsessed with. And I think the best stories come from obsession. Like, you know, I, I call 
a lot of what I did research, but it's not research. Research sounds like homework. Like this is stuff I was reading because I was obsessed, you know, obsessed with comics, obsessed with the history of comics, obsessed with the history of New York, obsessed with the music of New York at the time. And um, I think I wanted to tell a mystery story that was entertaining and compelling, but that also took readers you know, because it is still a mainstream mystery. It takes readers, hopefully, to a place they're not familiar with, which is comics, the comic book industry of the time. But for people like us who are like comic book lifers, I wanted to make it interesting enough that you got a kick out of the Easter eggs and had fun being in a different time period. Um, something you said that's very true is this idea that the secondary market, the direct market really changed the game. And I think that's accurate because um, I think in 1975, the industry was, was teetering. You know, people felt it was a failing thing. Comics were disposable, like something you read and put in your pocket and then threw in the trash. Like it was not an art. It was not literary, even though people were doing liter quote unquote literary stuff. I mean, you have like Steve Englehart on Dr. Strange, you have Steve Gerber doing a bunch of crazy stuff. You have, Denny O'Neill redefining redefining like social journalism through the prism of superheroes. And so you have a lot of great stories happening and it almost felt it based on what I read that it was like happening, but nobody was really noticing it outside of the bubble of comics. And um, I think part of it was because new, the newsstand market wasn't really thriving. So you printed, you had to print like 60,000 to sell 20 and it was just like not a, a sustainable business model. Um, and then, you see in the novel, you start to see the beginnings of conventions, the beginnings of the secondary market where people can start collecting these books. And I mean, for me, it was a game changer as a fan in the early nineties and to go to a comic shop and be able to buy older issues because then you got to get the bigger picture and that creates more serialized stories that creates continuity. Um, and one thing that I was particularly fascinated by was, you know, as we got into the eighties, there was so much more editorial oversight because you saw so much more, so much more merchandising, so much more potential media. So you saw action figures, TV shows, cartoons. So people start to think more of these characters as IP, as, as things that could be marketed and exploited, I guess. You know, the, the word has a negative connotation, but it's, you know, in terms of business, like licensing it out. Um, but in the 70s, that wasn't really at the front front burner that was in front of mind for a lot of people. I mean, it was just the comic, like, and you were either a super fan like Carmen, someone who loved comics and wanted to just be part of comics, or you were a writer that was kind of doing it to bide your time to get to do something else. And um, there wasn't that sense of, oh, this is going to be a lasting legacy. Yeah. I mean, the, the direct market, I think really, it introduced this idea that comics weren't disposable at, yeah. you know, as before. I mean, so many <laughs> older older collectors or older comic fans are like, yeah, I used to have this and that, whatever. My mom threw it out. I mean, I'm, I know my mom threw, I mean, again, eighties, but I don't have any of the comics yeah. from when I was a kid. They either got thrown out or I had a storage space when I moved to New York. And then for whatever reason, the storage space shut down and like sold all the stuff. So yeah, I, it's a bummer. Yeah. It's, but yeah, everyone has those horror stories and it's just like, it's that idea that comics are just like an old newspaper. Like it's not going to have any value and actually, and for me, it was sentimental value. Like, it's not just that I wanted to sell them, which I probably would not have. I would have kept them. But mm -hmm. it was just like that value of memory. And, you know, nothing beats pulling the comic out of the bag and opening it up and revisiting it and feeling it and the smell of newsprint. So, yeah, exactly. Going into an old comic shop that has that newsprint smell is just like, yeah. like heaven. Like heaven. <laughs> there could be an argument that we've almost swung too far in terms of, of value of IP. Because if there are times where I feel like, you know, and this isn't necessarily the case for everything. If you're at a smaller publisher or you're creator owned, you, you have that freedom. But 
certainly at the big two, there's more eyes on it because there's so much money involved. And, and I understand from a, a business standpoint, you want to protect your ability to sell, you know, pajamas and action figures and bedspreads and, and that sort of thing. But it's, it, it's a balancing act. It's, it's, it's tough, right? As a creator, would you say that's true? Yeah, I mean, I think what you saw in the 70s was a byproduct of Marvel and DC and those, you know, companies being all there was. Like, you couldn't really do a creator-owned book. So, Mm -hmm. if you're handed the keys to the question or another character, you're going to pour everything into it because it's not like you have the option to launch an image book or an Oni book or, you know, take it and own the IP yourself. When When that buffet expanded... Um, I think you saw, you know, creators rightfully save things for creator own. And, and then they understand that I'll do some stuff work for hire that, you know, syncs up with what the corporation wants, but I'll, I, you also have options. And I think options are great, but I don't think we'll see a time like the seventies again, where people are taking so many kinds of risks because it's just a whole different landscape now. Yeah. And, um, the other thing about that is uh, without the resources, a lot of times of the big companies, it can be a, a longer timeline to create. Now, you've worked in both medium. You've written comics. You obviously have written a ton of novels. Um, is it a longer gestation period? You know, not necessarily in, in logistics and, and actually sitting down to write it, but in terms of developing the story, like how long have you been working on Secret Identity? Um, it's funny because I had the I knew I wrote five private eye novels set in Miami, my hometown, featuring Pete Fernandez, this detective. Um, so I knew I was ending the series when I was writing the fourth one. There were five. Mm-hmm. And right around that time is when I started to think about what was going to be next. And I, I like to plan a couple books ahead, like what I'm going to be doing. And so um, then I wrote Miami Midnight, which was a finale. And I thought I would dive into Secret Identity afterwards. But um, I got the Poe Dameron novel, the Star Wars novel, which was a lot of fun. It was a tight deadline. It was exciting and a blast. Um, and that almost was a great little like palate cleanser between my crime noir series and then shifting back to crime fiction. Um, but to answer your question, I, I had it in the back of my mind for a couple of years in terms of a, a concrete book, but I've had the idea. It's just been percolating for a long, long time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because again, going back to these things that you know, uh, we mentioned that uh, that Carbon is uh, Cuban-American. Um, there's a little nuance there in terms of, of the, the culture uh, of, of you know, how close the families are and, and things like that. Carmen sort of gets her love of comics from from her dad. Um, I mean, that that stuff must have just been instinctual for you. It must have been really easy to, to add to the book. Is that true? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, what I like, Carmen reminds me of a lot of people I knew growing up. I mean, obviously, we're in different times. You know, I wasn't born in the 70s, but or I wasn't around. But, um, you know, similar backgrounds. You know, Miami is is a very unique place. It's very, you know, it's just like special to me. And I think everything I write will you know, aside from like a Star Wars novel, everything I write will touch on Miami in some way. Like the Black Ghost, uh, the lead character is from Miami as well. You know, it's just it's just a part of who I am. And so writing that through Carmen made a lot of sense. Now, being that there are so many aspects of the book that are things that are familiar to you or personal to you, you know, the, those things might have come easier. Were there any things that you wrote that felt like a challenge that maybe you had to go back and revisit? I don't know if that's quite right. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, Carmen and I have a lot of stuff in common, but we're not the same. Like we have different life experiences. So I had to talk, you know, I had beta readers, I had sensitivity readers to just kind of give me a nudge if anything was off base and, you know, try to approach it as thoughtfully as possible, you know, with the understanding that 
you know, it's not my place to tell like the definitive story of, you know, Carmen as a queer woman. It's more about just writing a story, a mystery novel with, with her as the lead character that's entertaining and engaging and, and making sure that I have people reading it beforehand who can give me a sense of where I'm at, you know, and that was really useful, I think. Yeah. And that's another way that the, the book sort of uh, has this, this idea of Carmen as, as kind of a hero who, who's sort of facing adversity just like her, her creation, you know, because being in the same sex relationship, certainly in the seventies, that wasn't something that you could be as open with even going into the eighties, nineties. And now today it's much more widely accepted. So uh, was that something you knew that you were going to have Carmen be homosexual? Was that something uh, that you knew early on about her as a character or did it come as you were kind of developing the, the novel? Yeah. I mean, when she, you know, sometimes characters just show up for you and you understand who they are. And then you, you as a writer are responsible for how you execute the story and you do it, you know, thoughtfully and mindfully and, and, you know, use all the tools at your disposal to tell the best story you can. Um, so that's, that's really what happened here. Gotcha. Now I, I've mentioned that uh, we've seen it on a lot of recommended reading. I think it was on the, the New York times uh, recommended mm-hmm. reading and a lot of like, how surprising has it been? Again, it hasn't even been widely released yet. How surprising and gratifying has it been? Because this, in a way, is a lot different from anything that you've done before. Like you mentioned your Pete Fernandez novels that have won some awards. Obviously, Poe Dameron. Star Wars has a kind of a built-in uh, audience. But again, this is something kind of different. Um, so how has that felt? And did it feel different in terms of, wow, are people going to get this? Any worries? Uh, it was that. gratifying. I mean, it was gratifying. I think whenever you write a book, you kind of send it into the void and hope people respond and you never know, like you, you obviously like it enough to finish it and put it out there, but um, it's gratifying that people enjoy the comic sequences. People seem to really resonate. You know, Carmen seems to resonate with a lot of people in terms of being an engaging protagonist. And um, my big thing as a mystery writer is I never want, you know, I want people to feel like the the twist is earned, you know, like it's not something like, oh, the butler you met in chapter two did it. And, you know, and just you don't want to shortchange the reader. So it seems like the people that have read it all the way through um, were surprised or at least didn't guess the twist, which is nice. Um, and yeah, it's it's gratifying and it's great because it's places that I read as a reader to see what to read next. So it's it's and it's oh, my book is always alongside like so many other fantastic novels. So it feels really amazing. Um and the reader response has been good so far, just in the, you know, in terms of reviews and attention. So I'm really grateful that, you know, as a writer, you're always grateful when somebody reads your book, whether even, even when they don't like it, like they, <laughs> you, you bought it, you read it. I appreciate your time. That's what I, you know, I, I try not to engage with negative reviews, but if someone, like if someone persists, I'll say, you know, thank you for reading. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, you, yeah. you've gave me your time and your, your engagement. And that's really special. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that from comic creators before where they say, you know what, it, I don't, I think it was Jimmy Palmietti actually recently was like, you know what? I get m- more people that read my book sometimes out of like hate reading it. But at the end of the day, I just want as many eyes on it as possible. So, you know, you take yeah, that sounds like Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned the comic sequences in here a couple of times. We talked about how they kind of mirror Carmen's journey as well. Was that something you knew early on that you were going to put in there to kind of break it up and, and lean into the fact that, hey, this is a story that's rooted in the comic industry. Let's get some pages of comics. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. And I've 
when I read Cavalier and Clay forever ago when it came out, I remember, of course, loving it because it's a fantastic novel. I remember feeling like very seen, like, oh, okay, this is a literary novel with some pulp elements, but it's got comics in it and just felt like it had everything I wanted in a book. The only thing I wanted that didn't exist was I wanted to read the Escapist comics in the novel. You know, I wanted to see what they were doing. Like, I wanted that visual component because coming from a comics background, you can describe a comic in prose, but you need to see it to really like experience it. And so, you know, eventually they did the Dark Horse comics, which are great. Um, but that idea always stuck with me. So when I knew I was going to do a, a noir, a murder mystery in the comic book industry, I realized early on, like, we need to have comic book sequences. We need to show, you know, it's kind of a meta commentary on character ownership and IP and this idea of creation and who owns your creation. And, you know, that's very big picture and it doesn't answer any questions. It just like puts it out there and lets mm -hmm. the reader determine it. But I felt like it was much more meaningful to have that journey also shown through the comic. Like you get to see the comic Carmen wrote anonymously that Doug Detmer drew. And then you get to see it when it's taken away, like not to spoil anything, but at one point the comic gets handed off to like these hacky writer and hacky artists. Um, and the tone is completely uprooted. And so I wanted to show that. And I, but I knew that the artists that I paired with had to not only be a great storyteller and artist, but have a sense of history. And so the first person that came to mind and thankfully he said yes was Sandy Gerald because he's not only an amazing artist and stylist, but he gets history, comic book history. He loves comic book history. He's a reader. He's a fan. He does these fantastic mock Silver Age covers like um, that just look like they're from the time he did. A, I think when I was about to ask him, I saw him posting one of a like a lost issue of Showcase featuring Hawkman. And I was like, this is the guy. And I've known Sandy a long time. We're friends. We're friends before this. Um, and so I reached out to him and I kind of walked him through it and he was into it. And I knew that when we were pitching the novel, we couldn't just say, hey, there's going to be comics in here. We had to show it. So mm -hmm. as a part of the proposal was, you know, part of the book, an outline, and then a sample page that Sandy drew and Taylor Esposito, the letterer, lettered, um, just as a proof of concept to show that this is what the book is going to be. And I think that's what really won people over. Yeah, I, I appreciated it. I looked forward to those pages because you just, again, Sandy was the perfect person for it. Uh, it the aesthetic of those pages just looked, you know, so period accurate because as yeah. you, you and I know the, you know, the printing wasn't as uh, sophisticated back then. The coloring wasn't um, which was, you know, again, there's nostalgia in that, but it's just so different. Like a, a physical comic in terms of a product today versus the seventies, it's, it's a world of difference. Yeah. And it's also, I, I think the thing that's great about Sandy's art is that he's not trying to, you know, imitate. It's not like him. Oh, here's Sandy doing Frank Miller. It's Sandy as Sandy mm -hmm. evoking a different time. Like he's, he's tweaking his own style. He's not trying to be like Gene Colan or something else. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, we've mentioned that you, you've done series before, like your Pete Fernandez series. Um, and, and I think Carmen's a fascinating character. I'd love to read more about her. Do you have uh, an idea for another uh, story that would play off of this one with Carmen or any, any plans to do something uh, more within in this kind of time period, at least. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that's possible. I love, I loved writing her. I think she's a fascinating character and she was so fun to like spend time with that. I, I always say, I'm going to try and write a standalone, but I always have trouble like giving away the characters. Like when I wrote silent city, my first Pete novel, I thought, okay, this will just be a PI novel and then I'll move on to do something else. And you know, five books later I finished it. So mm -hmm. yeah, anything's possible. Yeah, I mean, I guess it may be a little too early to say, because uh, as we said, it doesn't go wide until uh, till March 15th. But yeah, 
well, I, I absolutely loved it. Whether there's more or not, I'm sure it's one of those books, especially that I'm going to have the, the audio of. I'll listen to uh, over and over. Oh, they did a great job with the audio. I got to listen to it a sample a couple of days ago and the narrator, she's fantastic. And they also do the comic book sequences in audio. So it's at first I was like, oh, I guess I'll just skip them and just do the prose. But they do like very something very cool with the comic sequences that'll make you want to go to the hardcover and kind of flip through it and read along. Oh, fantastic. Can't yeah. Wait. Yeah. Well, it's been great chatting, Alex. Thank you so much. Uh, I think the novel's fantastic. Everybody go and check it out. Secret Identity. Uh, Again, goes wide on uh, November 15th. So, March, sorry, March 15th. Mar- March 15th. <laughs> Man, we don't, time goes by fast enough. I don't need to be skipping. Yeah, back. what is time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, in just a few days, it'll be out. Go check it out. You can go pre-order now from any number of, uh, of sites. Uh, anything if else? You, you- if, you do, if you do go on to bookshop.org, which supports indie bookstores, use the, the code secret identity and you'll get 10% off your pre-order. Gotcha. And I'll put a link to, uh, to bookshop.org in the show notes, everybody. So you can awesome. go and click there and, uh, and use that code for, for a, a discount. Um, anything you want to tease, anything that that's going to be coming out soon? I'm sure you're probably hard at work on your next uh, novel. Yeah, I'm in the weeds on my next crime novel. Uh, also, The Mysterious Microface, which is the comic book I'm doing with NPR's Planet Money, is about to come out. And that's drawn by Jamal Eigel. Uh, and basically, it's, it spins out of a series of podcast episodes Planet Money did where they were trying to buy a character from a comic book company. Mm. Obviously, they realize that nobody's going to sell them a character. You're like a story away from a character becoming a billion-dollar franchise. So Yeah, exactly. So they pulled this public domain character, Microface, and he's got audio powers. So it's kind of cool because they're a podcast. And they enlisted me to write the issue. And it's it's a legacy hero. So it's like the grandson of the original Microface stepping into the role. Uh, Jerry Ordway designed the costume and did the cover. And Jamal Eigel did the interior. So it's been a blast. It's been like a pinch me moment to get to work with these like legendary guys that are friends of mine. But I never envision being able to work with them. Um, and then also The Awakened, which is a superhero noir story I'm doing with Zest World, which is a new digital platform, um, newsletter platform, similar to Substack. And I'm working with Mike Moracy, a good buddy of mine, and Dean Kotz is the artist on that. So lots of stuff happening. Fantastic. Well, uh, where's the best place to follow you uh, online if people want to know when these projects are, are coming out? Yeah, alexsegura.com is my website. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm pretty active at alex underscore segura, S-E-G-U-R-A. I'm also on Instagram, Alex Segura Jr. And I I have a Facebook author page that you can find. Fantastic. So everybody go order right now, bookshop.org, go and order Secret Identity. You'll devour it like I did in just a few days. And then, yeah, hit Alex up on Twitter. I'm sure he'd love to hear uh, how much we all uh, love the, the novel. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah, I really appreciate the time, everybody. Uh, again, a link to go and pre-order the book in the show notes. I'll also put links to Alex's social media and his website so you can go check it out. Maybe go back and read Pete Fernandez's novels. Maybe yeah. you know look look for his upcoming uh, comic work. So uh, again, fantastic uh, to talk to you, Alex. Love the book. Best of luck with the sales. And to all you listeners, we uh, appreciate you listening and joining as always. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter. 
twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.